Okay. All right. Okay. Step forward. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is the return of the Then and Out podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, C. Diesel. And to the left of me today, I have the typical co-host, Lelouch V. We're one short today. Uh, Professor E is going to be on the way. He had to do his, his, um, I'm going to say Jay Williams. Let's do his name. Jalen Rose shit and get a crispy cut. Yo, so do you think that Jalen Rose is like low key capping and he does get his stuff altered? Because, like, he's been putting a big emphasis on trying to make sure that people know that his hair is real. Like, I'm still convinced that is a wig. His, like, for your line to be be that that perfect, bro. You want, like, all the time? Like, granted, I I know some dudes that, like, I used to go, like, I'd have vice principal in high school where he was like that he was always in a fresh suit and always had a cut and he's a regular dude the thing that i call cap on is the fact he's paying a hundred about a hundred dollars every cut there's no way you're getting a cut that frequently and paying a hundred bucks every time because at that point what is I he mean, doing to you at that point he he got the money to to do that and i'm sure that he if he is paying a hundred dollars per cut he you know he's taking care of his barber because you know his barber take care of him mm-hmm. but you know like his should be so per- like and like the the darkness of that color, bro. Like either I mean, you can tell dying it or it's you know what I'm saying. It's you know. Shout out to Jalen Rose though. I'm a, I'm a big fan, especially of you as a as a sportscaster, bro. So no no shade there, but yeah. You know, just, I mean, I'd rather pay eighty one dollars for my haircut. Just saying, that's just me though. <laughs> uh hold on i think you muted your mic or your mic's out yeah you muted yourself by accident it's, Which, it was uh, my cat can you hear me yeah i got you all right all right but let's let's go ahead and get to the, the meat and potatoes of the show guys we have a really great show in store for you guys today we have a special guest coming on later on and we're going to be discussing a very very interesting um project that we want to talk about and review so first and foremost with the project itself uh, we're going to be bringing back another person's creation, Mr. Carl Jones and his animation studio, Martian Blueberry. They teamed up with the Major League Baseball Association in creation of a mini docu-series called Undeniable based around the Negro Leagues from the MLB. So if people are not aware of what that is, that was the – at that point in time, baseball was segregated, so we had its own separate league for African-Americans playing themselves. So they not only get into the popular African-Americans that you obviously know about, like Jackie Robinson, but they also discuss like the women that played with the men in that uh, that league as well. So I personally did not know there were women that played in that league. That was the one thing I did not know about. Um, But I enjoyed this, this project all around. It's only like four to five minutes per one. There's only three episodes, so it's not super long. So I do the due due diligence and going and checking that out. Uh, Otis, what was your or Lelouch? What was your first impression of the series once you finished the uh, third episode? Um, so I mean, yeah, like I thought it was really informational. Uh, like I, I, I of course, I was aware of the Negro Leagues and uh, mm-hmm. primarily through you know Jackie Robinson, but getting able, being able to see like their overall impact and influence on the sport, not just you know specifically for the uh, for the African Americans in the sport. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really that was pretty huge um 
I enjoy, uh, I'm always a big fan of cell shaded animation. So, I mean, uh, the animation for it was pretty clean. Mm-hmm. And overall, it was just really informational and just gave me a lot of uh, positive information uh, on some of the things that we've accomplished, you know, through our own endeavors. All right. So really quickly, let's let's talk about the animation and get into that discussion point. Um, I love, first and foremost, the shots they animate. I love the under, like we talked about it in something else we reviewed recently where the, I think it was Swarm actually, where we discussed like the overhead shot and the, the underhead shot. I love how, I feel like that made things more dramatic. Like it made the people they use that shot on feel like they were grander than life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love how they did that. And then they would bring in the name of that person. So it made that person feel like a superhero, uh, especially for the women. Uh, I think Lonnie, oh my God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna butcher names. I'm not gonna butcher names, but Smith Stone, I think is the name of one of the, the first one they discussed. Uh, that was dope. Like her intro for that was sick to me. I love how, how I just love the animation style. Like it's, it's reminiscent of the Boondock style to an extent. It's not as like obviously you can tell there's not as much money put behind that as where it was the Boondocks, but if you're a fan of the Boondock series, you will definitely see some inspiration here. Or it's Carl Jones who's involved in the series, so it's it makes sense that there's some um, correlation between the two and two. Right. No, I absolutely agree. And then just uh, like going back into those shots, like. It- it it brought my more attention to that than like even like you know what you typically see in baseball like because mm-hmm. like you know because it's animation and it's a medium where you can kind of play around with it more than you can with live action stuff like being able to create scenes that you normally wouldn't be able to get on a baseball field that was and also considering the fact that a lot of the stuff that from back then wasn't televised you're kind of getting to see that on the first time on screen so that was really mm-hmm. dope and then, but yeah, like uh, what you were saying, like you, you definitely saw some, some reminiscence of uh, the Boondocks in that, which I really appreciated because I mean that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite animations. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, just knowing that uh, Martian B was able to collaborate with the MLB to put something like that out, mm-hmm. and it's not just you know like a, a throwaway thing just for like Black History Month. Like this is a piece of content that they really supported. So I, I, I really uh, appreciated that about it as well. Yeah, that's another thing for me too. I would love if the MLB would fund their endeavors of creating a actual like series, like an actual series following one of these um, infamous baseball players that they brought up. Maybe the women. I'd probably be more interested in seeing their actual life. Some, something like a biopic similar to Forty Two, but animated and following that individual. I think that would be really dope to see. Um, obviously, the MLB would probably want them to like, add a coat of paint to some of the stuff, though, where you don't get the full. Uh, raw way that things were back then obviously i think they kind of did it to a certain extent in this where they showed you some stuff but like the fact they just showed a white only sign they didn't really get into any of the crazier stuff but hmm. if they can get more raw i'd appreciate it to an extent. well maybe you get into a conversation there about black trauma hmm. porn and things of that nature but i i feel like things like this are needed so this information isn't just kind of glossed over going in the right. future, especially if you're a fan of the sport. I myself am not the biggest uh, baseball fan in general. I have an appreciation for the skill of the sport, but I just don't follow it as much. Right. So for someone that's actually like a baseball head, I feel like you got to do your due diligence to go back and look up this information because it's part of the sports history that you love so much. And I'd be interested to know, again, if you're a big baseball fan, let us know in the comments. Did you know about any of this information prior to watching this stuff? Or 
is it something that you just stumbled upon? Because I'm really interested to see if the actual fans know the history. Yeah, because I mean, also not a, a big baseball fan myself. Like, honestly, if, if I had known information like this previous to this, I would have been more inclined to try to at least pay attention somewhat to it. Mm-hmm. Just because, like, I mean, the baseball is a sport that I, I, I mean, I, I know that we play in it, like, you know, we as, uh, you know, black people, but and there are plenty of us there, like, the, the, and the ones that are there are, are notable people within the sport. But it's not one that we've dominated like, you know, we've have basketball and football. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I feel like uh, having this information is uh, out there and, and made publicized on a, a big medium like this is, is good. Absolutely. I think that it can encourage more diversity to come to the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, and considering like, uh, like, you know, through the information they showed, like how successful we helped to make the sport become. I think that can help us to drive it into a bigger space going forward. Because, I mean, at this point, I've, I feel like baseball has partially been eclipsed by, you know, the uh, the other two major sports in the, in the in, at least in North America. But, I mean, in, well, yeah. Yeah. in North America, yes. I, I think football is obviously third in that hierarchy. If we're talking about baseball, basketball, and football, mm-hmm. obviously football is in the last because it's not international. Internationally, baseball, I think it's like – it's possibly a, still above basketball, right behind football, like the actual football and soccer. soccer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, as far as that goes, because kind of getting into the second episode, which was talking about the international impact that the Negro League had. Obviously, there's a lot of like you see it in things like Family Guy and other shows like that, where they make the stereotypical skits of Dominican and Spanish players being really predominant in baseball itself. I wasn't aware that a lot of that attention and a lot of that um popularity of the sport came from the Negro League players going to those countries and being held heralded as heroes and celebrities there and that obviously helped to get a lot of people in the sport and somebody that's a big basketball fan myself I kind of look at it like somebody like Kobe or 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 AI going overseas and now you have you like with China like literally Kobe in China where Kobe went mm-hmm. overseas and he's like a huge icon over there they have statues of him and then I feel like you start to see a lot of international players around maybe like five years to a decade ago where you see like a huge influx of them. Where you got your Rui Hachimura's, your um, your uh, what's buddies that's on the Knicks name? Oh, my God. His name slipped me to Japanese player. Yuta Watanabe. You oh, have uh, the Brooklyn Nets. Yeah, yeah, you have a lot of players that from countries you normally don't see. Like I can only count one Asian player that I can think of being, well, two being Yao Ming and Jeremy Lin. Jeremy Lin, there's another one, Yi something. I can't remember his name. Hmm. It's Yi something, but Yi something. But players like that, you don't normally see them in that sport. But I think because you have these black athletes that go to these countries and make this impact and 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 show how great the sport can be, it brings interest in. And I think hmm. it's positive for the sport. That's that's again, that's why I'm I'm it make this this something like this makes me really proud to be black and be in my skin knowing that our ancestors and our history made such an impact in not only the sport but the world all right no i I thoroughly agree uh just like understanding that you know one 
we uh we we were the direct catalyst for expanding it to those places because like you know the 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 major league players weren't leaving the country to try to you know make these appearances so knowing that you know the jackie robinsons of the world were out there inspiring the uh the international scene to come to baseball mm-hmm. and then to help elevate it to to the level that it's at like you know like uh, in in japan like baseball's their second major sport behind uh soccer now so i mean mm-hmm. knowing that the negro leagues directly influence that like that's that's huge like i mean uh, especially knowing how much uh, the the Japanese anime culture has affected me, knowing that we can give something to them in, the, uh, in exchange. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's always been pretty dope. Man, yeah, that's how the I feel like that's how the world should be. Just like you're ex- the exchanging of culture and what you enjoy about it is something that's beautiful to me. And that's mm-hmm. why you see, I think the world now things are so much infused. Like even something like the Boondocks, that's like a hundred percent a lot of black culture. That's the source material, but then you see that influx of like anime like japanese animation that's mm-hmm. in there that everybody loves and it's a reason why it's such a popular thing and it's lasted so long so mm-hmm. seeing that influx on going forward into the third episode one thing i was also not aware of was how impactful that negro leagues were on the black economy like obviously like most people i know about black wall street and how successful that was in cultivating black economy and us kind of putting money back into ourselves. I was not aware that the Negro League teams brought in so much attention to that. Mm-hmm. But you you figure, I mean, I, I, I kind of understand to an extent how that works for like the NBA, how like a team like the Lakers is probably bringing in a lot of financial capital into the economy of Los Angeles. And the, like, there's a reason they have like four NBA teams. And that's probably one of the reasons why they're one of the bigger money-making states in the country, because they have all these professional teams that, are not only popular teams, but the bigger popular teams in the world. They're funneling so much money to that to that place. So seeing something like that being very much equivalent with the Negro Leagues and those black communities, I found it very interesting. Um, and I, I think, I've, I, I don't know if you've heard about it, but I know there's some places in America are trying to do Black Wall Street to a similar degree. There's like a, there's a, like a town in Atlanta, like a little section of a town where it's um, like all black people. They built like these really futuristic slash modern style homes. And the whole street is all just like black people there. And they're trying to recreate that to an extent. Um, so it'd be, it's just cool to see that we're taking stuff like that from the past and at least trying to carry that on in the future. I mean, yeah, I actually didn't know that about Atlanta. But I mean, if they are, of course, building a physical community for, for black people to be in, as well as, you know, enforcing the group economics that made black street uh black street black wall street what it is then um that's something i would definitely want to support because i mean we, we we need places for us to establish our own economic growth mm-hmm. but um no uh but yeah that was that was that was a huge like kind of well i mean okay so like i i've, I've heard references to like you know the the negro leagues and, and music and, and comedy from that time because like you know my grandparents were were really big into mm-hmm. you know uh well my uh my, my granddad on my dad's side he was really big into baseball in general so i mean i, I felt like I, I i just thought that he was collecting things specifically that highlighted you know stuff about the negro leagues i didn't realize mm-hmm. that it was directly impacting the the black economy at the time like i mean mm-hmm. getting information like that i mean it, it in hindsight it makes sense just because like now I, me being such a big basketball fan like yourself like 
I'm starting to be aware of exactly how much money sports generate for an area. Like, you know, seeing things like how LeBron brought $3 billion to Ohio or, you know, how the valuation of the Warriors went from, you know, a couple hundred million to over $4 billion after the, the, mm-hmm. the Warriors' stealth run. I mean, uh, uh, so, I mean, it, it is very apparent of how economically beneficial sports can be but just knowing that that was a main center point of the black dollar at the time that was that was that was a little bit of a bombshell for me i didn't i didn't Mm -hmm. even think about thinking about that right no i'm saying i won't get too much into the 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 philosophy and the economic philosophy that people have as far as where the black dollar should go and how we cultivate that and things of the nature i think that's a bigger conversation i don't know if we have enough time for in the podcast but um seeing seeing stuff like this as as much as as it's entertainment and great educational stuff i think we need to also use it as a reference to the future like obviously there's a lot of stuff in the past that needs to be left there but i think we can learn a lot of lessons from like stuff like this and how we can try to take that build upon it and use it in the future which again being communal and the your economic spending and choosing like this let's not put seven billion dollars into gucci's pocket and look at a lot more black owned brands and black independent stuff and obviously there's like a bigger conversation about who's actually owning it but if we can work to get something like that done i think that will help this us as a people a lot more and end a lot of not maybe not end but help in a lot of conversations black people have as far as our disconnectedness from i don't know if that's even ever a word word but <laughs> us being disconnected from one another economically, socially, in a lot of different ways like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there's no question that, like, you know, us as black people are one of the, uh, are the biggest consumers in America. So, I mean, if anything that we can do to start shifting that, uh, that spending into ourselves to help mm-hmm. grow, I mean, that can definitely be a huge thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, that seeing that's exactly how it was done before, like, you know, Going back to the 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 the, the docu series, like you know, seeing that they were making music around the Negro League, seeing mm-hmm. that they were making restaurants and events dedicated to stuff like that, I think that is something that we can we can duplicate rather easily, mm-hmm. especially with uh, the amount of black celebrity that we have. Like if we can get somebody like that to uh, somebody of a high level to endorse that and then start the ball rolling there, that can definitely go a long way into generating mm-hmm. some some economic growth for us and uh and and <laughs> in today's uh world post-covid uh we can definitely use that absolutely mm-hmm. um one comment that really stood out to me and within that third episode is the fact that when um when the negro league was to uh, fully dissolve and go into the major leagues mm-hmm. how that directly hurt the uh the black economy mm-hmm. well how, how do you feel about that charlie um it, it it made sense obviously obviously you have people that are the conspiracy theorists and say that was a uh preemptive premeditated move to kind of destroy black wall street um because we already know that was a goal back then at that point in time to kind of break that up because they were making so much money and being so successful it it, it kind of made me like I'm i'm curious now as to how that exactly happened i'd love to do some research to figure out how that happened on an economic level but it, it makes sense that they kind of drowned out like i, I like I, i'm looking at like 
like the NBA, right? When you have things like the the like the N one league or what was Ice the Big Three league the Ice Cube has, mm-hmm. where you have these independent or even the um, the Big Baller league that Levar Ball had, you have these independent leagues where they can take black talent because let's let's be honest, in a lot of these sports, some of the upper echelon talent is black talent, black people, and you take them like if you like if. That's like that's one of the reasons why I, I think college basketball is going to doubt to an extent is because you have a lot of these young basketball players who are very talented. And now you have the opportunity for them to either go to the NBA G League directly where they can be paid a good amount of their like top tier talent or they can go overseas to where you're taking all the best talent out of these schools. Now you're only going to have a very niche fan base that's going to pay attention to that sport because most people are casual consumers so they're going to go to where the flash and the popularity and the big names are you have like with college basketball in general it's not as popular around the world because it's very niche and you don't give the stars the ability to shine as much and when you do you have these large booms in economic like when duke had zion williamson i know for a fact their jersey sales went through the roof their viewership went through the roof they made a lot of money when zion was there um, or probably even that's why the NBA is probably making a lot of money off of Victor Wembanyama now because they're showing his G League uh, team plays and whatnot. So it, it makes sense that the major league saw that this was making so much money for these individual black communities. I'm like, all right, logically speaking, economically speaking, how do we mooch off that money that they're making? They're making too much of it. Let's just take the product that they have there and move it into our stuff so that viewership and that money and that attention comes to us. So now we're getting and generating that fund, those funds that they were getting. So to me, that makes sense there economically now. It's kind of fucked up that that was the thought process back then. But from a economic, like business owner level, I can see that being the case. So adding a slight tangent and caveat to this, do you think that we need to build more spaces where we are completely, you know, building it uh you know with the black dollar and showcasing it with the black dollar to continue to uh, raise money for that if that makes any sense or do you think we should focus more so on inclusion and making sure uh things are open to to everyone so i'm i'm very conflicted um and when it comes to that because growing up my grandfather was very much so pro-black everything we watched even like the bad black films we were watching growing up because he supported everything black from art to music to everything. Bad or not, he was supporting it because it was black. And I, I hold some of those values to myself as far as black owned businesses and things that black people put a lot of time and money into. But at the same time, I grew up in a military town where I'm used to being around people of all other cultures. I'm also a nerd that loves anime and all kinds of mythology that come from other cultures that we take from. So I'd like to say if we could have the in my perfect world, it'd be something that is black owned, but also has people of these other cultures coming in to make sure that their culture is being used in an honest and well done way that's tasteful. So like we're not just bastardizing their stuff. We're not making something called kimono and putting a brand on it like it's the American original thing. Uh, they mean to throw shots at somebody there. But yeah, with stuff like that, I'm very much so pro-black but we can we can be more open and let other people in so i think that's how you get the best product and the best stuff boondocks being an example there but i will say on that same accord we need to as a culture because you know black people in america we are the ones that direct culture and where it goes 
if you're wearing it's like New Balance, like you see how New Balance is starting to come back in the phase and they're probably making a lot of money because now famous celebrities are wearing them, influencers are wearing them, and they're making them look cool again. And not everybody's into that trend. And now New Balance stock and their prices go up. Mm-hmm. So we can have these Black-owned things and people within our culture are actually helping to even just co-sign what we have. That stuff's going to shoot up and that value's going to go up intrinsically from me, my perspective. Maybe it's not that easy, but in my perfect world, that's how things work. I mean, it's not too far off from the the truth, but we won't. We will. We'll, we'll do a uh, then and now economics on a different episode. All right. Uh, Going for forward, this, but for yeah. this episode, uh, what if, well, if you had to put a rating on this docu series, what do you give it? Undeniable. To me, I give it a ten, and I, I know it's going to seem like we're gassing it because we're fans of Carl Jones and what he does, but I wholeheartedly believe that this was a perfect blend of education and entertainment. I didn't feel bored watching these at all. They were like, to me, the perfect length. They weren't super long and it was entertaining and I got intrinsic educational value from them. No, I'm, I, I can't actually argue with you here, Charlie. I think uh, I think I'm going to go a nine just because uh, my only complaint is that I want more. Give me give me another three mm-hmm. episodes uh, continue this series out so we can get more of it. But no, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, they were very entertaining they were educational and it made me more curious about the sport which is i think something that they wanted from this content in general so uh, in that aspect it did its job my again my complaint give me more more. all right so moving forward ladies and gentlemen we got them and that meaning we have a very special guest coming up it or not uh, <laughs> we have a very special guest that we've asked to come onto the show. Uh, Otis knows, I don't, I don't know if you know him very well, but he's either from, I don't know if he's from Chicago or not. I, I was going to say he's from the city, but he, he does something very, very dope and very close to our hearts in Chicago. And ladies and gentlemen, we have Mr. Craig Bass. I hope I pronounced it right. You did pronounce it right. Good job. Perfect. Hey, man, how you doing? You guys. Good. How are you guys doing? Uh, pretty good, man. I'm uh, I'm excited to have you on. I know we our, our first initial uh, meeting was relatively soon, but to, to make the quick turnaround for you to come on the show, I really appreciate, man. So how are you doing? Honored to be on. Thank you, guys. Doing great. Thank you for calling me a very special guest too. I I appreciate that. Yeah, all our all our guests are very special, man. Anybody oh, now, I a... now I don't feel very special anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I say that because anybody that's willing to give us our time to come on our little old platform, I, I'm very thankful for because it means a lot to me individually. Like, whether anybody sees it or not, I appreciate you. Well, thank you guys for having me on. Of course. That being said, for Mr. Mr. Bass, for anybody that doesn't know who you are, what you do, would you please let everybody know? Yeah. So I'm a filmmaker from the Chicagoland area, not in the city. Um, not very far from the city though. We're in Brookfield and in Brookfield is an arcade called Galloping Ghost, which is the biggest arcade in the world at, I'm going to get it wrong. What's that? One of the coolest places ever. Is that what you said? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're up to something like 800 or excuse me, 920 something games at this point. Every Monday they put a new game on the floor. It's a block long, the, the venue and uh yeah it's a very cool place but even more interesting than this is that the owner's been working on his own game for 28 years at this point and when i found that out as a storyteller i had to figure out 
just that. What was the story behind this? And wh what happened to the game? You know, when I found out it was a few years ago and I didn't even know, had the game been done? Was it still being worked on? I figured it had been done and just kind of languished in obscurity. But then when I met the gentleman, Doc Mack, who owns the arcade, he uh, he filled me in on the fact that the game was still being worked on. So I've never met anybody that spent so much time on any one thing um, and put so much into it. And I think that that alone made me interested in telling his story. Okay. So let's 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 take it back to the beginning. Let's, let's go back way back way to the wee lad, wee mini mini Craig. Um, obviously, to get into stuff like games and filmmaking, you had to have some sort of inspiration growing up in your childhood. L l tell us about just your upbringing and like how you got into this, I guess, the nerd space, for lack of a better term. Yeah. So I'm 41. So the big things for me when I was a little, little kid, the big, you know, inspirational things would have to be definitely NES because I was very young when that came out and just Zelda, Mario, those original, the original wave of those games, I was obsessed. And beyond that, Kung Fu movies, particularly 80s and 90s Hong Kong Kung Fu movies, Jackie Chan and his, you know, the, the guys that came up with him, Sammo Hung Yun Biao, um, was a huge inspiration. I was always a massive fan of martial And Bruce Lee, of course, Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee's films aren't nearly as, Bruce Lee's films aren't very good. They're not even very entertaining, most of them. But Bruce Lee is extremely charismatic, and he's an extremely interesting person. So, you know, while the films aren't great, him as an individual has always fascinated me. Um, and then even, you know, even arcades to an extent. My uncle would take me to arcades when I was little, and this was, I think, even then, it, they were kind of losing steam by the time I was old enough to go. Uh, and that was a fascinating place to be. But, you know, beyond that, comics for sure, right? And I remember loving Image Comics when they first came out um, with that first run of, like, Gen 13 and Savage Dragon and all these cool new properties. Not, we hadn't really seen a bunch of new properties like that. Bigger than that, actually, something I've neglected, anime. So I fell into anime mm. super young. And you had, you know, Blockbuster Video had, like, three anime and i would rent them and watch them rent them and watch them rent them and watch them and i started to find out that oh at some some comic stores in the back of the store on the bottom shelf were bootleg versions of shows that had been subbed by fans in their basements so started to buy up these obscenely expensive fan sub tapes then started to trade tapes with people all over the world through the mail very different world the internet's the godsend uh so anime was massively like especially the 90s uh 80s and 90s anime super super influential influential um i don't know if i'm missing those, those are the big things for me the big nerd things <laughs> no you uh you're, you're definitely online with us a lot so i mean to make the step from being a consumer of all these things to being a creator of like you know stuff uh within itself is a huge jump can you tell us a little bit about what made you actually want to start, you know, making things yourself as opposed to just watching it like everyone else does? Yeah. I mean, I think my best friend Stephen always says nobody tells a child to draw. Every kid just draws. And I think that's true for all of us. You just do it instinctually. It feels right to create. 
So I actually think making that movement into doing things, actively being involved in creative pursuits, isn't it, it's really kind of the natural state of all of us. I mean, I would assume all of you, including me, were making movies in your head as a little kid. We're drawing things out. And that was just always the way to be. And when I was 10, I started making Kung Fu movies with my best friends. Their dad would film it on the old VHS camera. We'd score it by having a TV in the background with uh, usually Street Fighter on. And I'd just let the Street Fighter music play as we pretended to fight. And then we were just live scoring these ridiculous films. But we would draw our own comics. You know, we would draw our ideas for video games. And you just create naturally as a child. The question is, why is it that when we start to get older, creation turns into something that we see as uh, work? It's too much work. It's too, you know, why, why do we step away from it? So I've just kind of always been in the headspace that if there's something I love, I want to do that thing. So, you know, and I'd rather make a movie than watch a movie. Getting, getting, being creative is, is, I love watching movies. I'm a cinemaphile. I love watching film. But the act of doing is so much more fulfilling than the act of consuming. So I think that, um, I don't know. I, I think it's totally natural to do these creative things. It's what is the force, and I haven't completely deciphered this, what is the force that works against us and convinces us as we get older not to do these things, to just consume, not to create any longer. So so to play off that point, obviously, as all three of us here know, when you're creative, you get that you hit that wall every now and then or you're burnt out or it's it's stressing you out. Do you feel like you hit that wall and how do you stay motivated to just create consistently? Mm -hmm. Or do you take breaks in here and there? No, I mean I think everybody hits that wall, but you what do they uh somebody had a great quote and I, I can't even paraphrase it now, but it was basically like inspiration is inconsequential. You do the, you just keep going at it. You get up and you do the work. So that might be the thing when you're a kid, you draw because you instinctually seemingly instinctually have this um, you're compelled to create and you draw when you want to draw. I guess that's a big difference when you get older. And maybe that's why people start to perceive these things differently. Once you start to out of these things or you start to make a habit out of them you have to do it whether you want to do it or not some days so i don't think there's any secret i think that's just it you have to do it whether you want to do it or not and some days it's immensely fulfilling and fun and some days it's exceptionally painful and it's a massive struggle and it's like pulling teeth I don't worry as much. I don't get the blocks as much as I used to, but that's also a function of if you're doing the work continuously, you're not just waiting for inspiration. You, I don't know. I think things just come easier on, on average. Um, it's like, <clears throat> it's like lifting weights. It's your creative muscles. You know, once you build them up, they can support you most of the time. You're still going to have some bad days where you can't lift as heavy, but in general, you become stronger and everything's a little bit easier. So I wish I had a better <laughs> like key cheat code for, you know, what do you do when you get blocked up? Um, but I think it's, it's working at it. When the pandemic came, I started writing a novel, which I never finished, unfortunately. So it's half written, but I had a goal for myself and it was 2000 words a day. So that might take 
I mean, I don't really remember, but let's say you're flying. Maybe that takes two hours or something. Mm-hmm. An hour. And then some days it would take like five hours, but I held myself accountable to 2000 words a day, you know, and that was my method at that time to push me forward. And yeah, I don't know. I, I wish I had a cheat code, but I think a lot of it is just keeping at it and accepting the fact it's going to be hard sometimes. That's, I think one reason we turn away from these things because the moment they're just, they're not just pure fun anymore. Oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it, but I'm not really looking for fun. I'm looking to be fulfilled. And on that path, I'll have fun. There will be days when we have a lot of fun. But being fulfilled has always been infinitely more important to me than, than having fun. Because fun will come and fun will go. It'll be there. So I think the, the most important part is to apply yourself uh, diligently to the craft and accept that some days it's going to suck. I uh, apologize for coming in late, Craig. I, I am the, no I'm the third host. Ironically enough, you're talking about uh, uh, how hard it is to do to follow up your suit and, and be involved with the craft. Uh, and, I'm an, and I'm half an hour late or more. So, the uh, yes, yeah, so mm-hmm. shame on me for that. Uh, LA traffic hates me a lot in the face. Uh. Uh, but uh, but so, so if one understand, though, you actually own uh, the world's greatest and the most amazing arcade with over uh, 10 billion Not arcade me. machines oh, no. in it. Uh, you, you've yeah. made 17 million films to this week. Uh, you've written oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so 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 it's, it's it's all these wonderful things it's great uh, thank you so much for being on the show uh but i'm just curious uh, real quick just for my own personal gratification what are you most proud of that you've done as an artist creator owner uh well and i don't own it so i'm making a film about the guy that owns the arcade so i'm just a that's, that's perfectly fine. we'll get perfectly to that more fine. in a little bit but yeah. yeah yeah what am i most proud of probably what i'm working on right now and i'll tell you why because I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but I had most of my life had a hard time with finishing things. So I had a million ideas and I'd work on something. And then when it got hard or when things didn't go my way or whatever, it's like, yeah, let's move on to this. Now, when I got older, when I started my own business doing video production, you ha- I had to finish things because they were people were paying me to finish things. But then I also started to learn how to finish creative work as well. Uh, and I'm just telling you how I didn't never finish my book that I started writing, but maybe one day. But I think that I've been working on this film for almost two years. I've spent $60,000 of my own money, which could sound like a lot or a little, uh, but it's all I had to put in, you know, and I don't have anymore. And I think that I, you know, and I put thousands and thousands and thousands of hours into this. And a lot of those hours, nobody cared at the time, right? I'm sitting here in my office for five, six hours straight, you know, translating notes that I took while I was working through the story of this and, and looking for inspiration and structuring things. And um, so I think that sticking with this project for so long is actually a huge victory for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's pro- I've proven to myself that I've grown and uh, I'm more mature. And that I can really go the distance on things. So I think, I don't know if that's a good answer, but I think that that what I'm doing now brings me the most pride because it's perhaps forced me to grow more than any other project. You, you could say you could. I'm not saying that, that you should say, but I'm saying you could say that you're most proud of your own growth, that you matured into a more uh, yeah. consistent artist, I mean, which is great. Yeah, frankly, I hate all my work. I don't know if you guys are artists, I, you probably feel the same way or you don't, but... Everything I do, I hate. Uh, when you look back at it, you can never materialize the thing that's in your mind. 
So I just keep moving forward. You know, that's kind of, I don't spend a lot of time looking back. I'm not saying looking back is a bad thing by any means, but for me, there's plenty of new ideas. So if we finish this, we do the best we can, we put it out there. If I look back on it too long, I just see the difference the between where I'm at now and where that, yeah, mm-hmm. and where that. Mm-hmm. That's like the, my biggest struggle. Uh, like, well, I'll do video essays on the channel every now and then. And if I ever show one to somebody, I have to like turn it on and then run away. Because I want them to see it, but I don't want to see it because I don't want to be reminded of stuff that I messed up on. Right. Similar. I, I have similar tendencies. Yes. <laughs> I know, I'm not sure if uh, Otis and uh, Charlie talked to you about this before, but did you guys cover like imposter syndrome as well? Where you? Nope. Oh, we have not. Uh, I wasn't sure if, if that's something you may deal with yourself, Craig. Where you? Uh, just what you just said, just there, it kind of reminded me of imposter syndrome where you feel like you are incapable of doing whatever you did before, or that you're not good enough to do it again, or that you will be found out as being, you know, a fake. Like you, people are like, oh my gosh, Craig is the most amazing filmmaker of all time. You're like, I'm not. I'm. I am the saddest person in the world. You bury, bury your head in the sand for a while. Has that ever happened before too? I don't know about the imposter part in the sense of, I don't know that anybody's thought I was the greatest filmmaker of all time. So I don't know that I uphold any vision uh, that people have of me. But I think um, for me, what I struggle with is when I see something that speaks to me, I, I feel a compulsion to be of that caliber. And you know, I might be watching a film that somebody made and they'd been making films for 25 years or something. And then they made this film, but I still, and this probably, I mean, this doesn't do me any, any good to feel this way, but I'll feel like, Hey, I want to make something that, you know, stands against it. Again, my, I brought up my best friend, Steve earlier, and he had, uh, he has illustrated a comic an indie comic. And he was telling me at one time when they were making it, he said, I don't want to just make something that's good enough. I want to make something that can sit on the shelf next to my favorite books. And unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever for him, his favorite books were mainly Marvel. Uh, So that there was a tall order to match that level of professionalism. Right. So I don't know that I ever feel like the imposter thing very much. I'm lucky to not suffer from that too much. I think I feel the frustration at my own limitations constantly, Mm. right? Mm. That I want to be X and I'm just not there yet. Either I haven't been doing it long enough or I'm just different, you know, whatever the case may be. I don't think it's helpful. You know what I mean? I think it's, um, this isn't something that I'm particularly proud of and I don't think it helps anybody. But if anything, maybe hearing, I think sometimes talking about these things and you guys bringing these things up is great. Because other people certainly feel similarly, and this way they feel like, oh, I'm, it's not just me. You know, right. there's not something wrong with me. It's not just me. Like all these other people have these same feelings. So I think that's very important. Now, a question that I have for you, Craig, because I know before when we talked, uh, you were telling me about how so many of the projects that you had made early on in, in your, your career that you, you hated, like you didn't enjoy being on those at all. Can you tell us a little bit about those and how they helped to prepare you to create uh, the the document that you're working on right now? Yeah, I think, I mean, here's maybe the most important thing to mention is, so I, when I was nine, so I dropped out of high school. I had a terrible high school experience. I had a broken family. My adolescence was a mess. So I dropped out of high school and I want to be a filmmaker. I certainly don't have money or the means to go to film school, but I still have this feeling that I want to be a filmmaker. 
So at one point I was able to get a, a fairly inexpensive digital video camera. This is forever ago. So old DV camera. And I was ignorant. So I thought all I need to do is to make a movie. Hey, I'll shoot a documentary because you don't need a cast. You don't need a cinematographer. You don't need a sound guy. You just need a camera and a mic and you film life. Mm-hmm. And it's that simple. And I decided I was going to make a movie about at the time I had, I'd got my GED and I had gotten into community college and I had this philosophy professor that was just a very interesting fella. He was a German expatriate. He had lived on like, he, he just had a wild story. He had been a theater actor. He had lived on um, American military bases in Morocco, selling like goods to soldiers that he would, I don't know, find in the desert or it just, and then he had these, just interesting ideas on, on philosophy. So I thought, Hey, that's an idea for a documentary. You know what I mean? And I'll just follow them around and I'll film. And, and then a a documentary will come. Well, that's not certainly not how it was. So (laughs) that kind of fell apart because I had a very ill-conceived idea of how that was going to go. And that was hard. You know, it was hard to sort of fail, right? That's what we talk about. I mean, that was total failure. And I even went to like Italy for this. He was doing this meaning of life thing in Italy. And I, it was my first time out of the country. I got on a plane alone and flew out there and was there a week with my camera. And, you know, it, a lot went into it, but then my next pursuit, I took some time away and, and I'm just like working at a restaurant at this point, trying to cut my teeth, hone my craft. And I have another idea for a film. And this is when cosplay wasn't, you know, this, I was probably 24 or so at this point. So 41 now. So this is cosplay was around, but it was mainly present in the anime community and it was big in the anime community, but it hadn't even really broken much into like the Comic-Con community, Mm -hmm. certainly not the public eye. So I thought, man, I'm going to make a documentary on cosplay. I'm fascinated by it. One, I have these, this history of loving anime. So seeing people bring these characters to life is really cool. Two, I've always had a fascination with human behavior. And in fact, when I was sort of at my lowest point thinking I'll never be a filmmaker, there's just no hope. My intent was to potentially go into anthropology um, and study Mm. human culture and human behavior, which if you think about it, documentary is really just a cinematic extension of anthropology uh, analyzing, you know, cultures and subgroups and stuff. But anyway, I thought this, this is a really cool phenomenon and it probably has some roots in what it means to be human because you look at a lot of indigenous peoples putting on masks, becoming the spirit or becoming different. You know, there seems to be, uh, our outfits seem to have a deeper significance. Our appearance, sometimes the appearance that we choose to take on seems to have a deeper significance. So I thought this is great. I'm going to, I called it the art of actualization and kind of like a, kind of a pretentious title, but I'll get in there and we'll do this film. And I shot for at least three years. I was a waiter at night. I would put all my money that I would, you know, I pay my rent and stuff. And then I'd put everything else into the film. And I got two other guys involved that I ended up meeting who both had film degrees and we shot forever. And we made relationships with so many people, went to so many cons, spent so much time, ended up with 280 hours of footage. Jesus and then, God. Oh my God. <clears throat> it was, well, but here was the problem. One of my co-directors said, look, man, we need a conflict. We don't have a conflict. We're just following people around, talking to them, learning about their lives. I said, dude, documentary is all about purity. Stop trying to force 
your your ideas, your conflict. It's just well, here's the thing. He was right. Stories are only conflict. If you don't have a conflict, if you don't have struggle, you don't have a story. I was wrong. We've got 280 hours of footage, and we're and I'm starting to come to the realization that I've been too stubborn and and I'm wrong. And now, how do we find a story? And then this other my co-director who I was mentioning has a psychotic breakdown and he loses his mind. He starts thinking that uh, people on the L train are letters in the alphabet of God, and it, it's he loses his mind. He's a great guy, but he has deep psychiatric issues. And there was another fellow that was acting as a producer. He steals all the footage and abscounds to Las Vegas and says he's going to sell it to Comedy Central for God knows why. I, Comedy Central didn't want it anyway, and he was nuts. The whole thing implodes. And this three years of my life, all my time, all my money, these like relationships I had built, everything is just up in flames. Jesus. And I did not, I was like, I never want to do a documentary again, you know? And those failures definitely shaped who I am now, the work that I do now, the way that I perceive art now, all of these things. I feel like that didn't exactly answer your question, but the point I'm trying to make is like, (laughs) who was I? I was talking to somebody about failure yesterday and it's like, the people that succeed are the people that are willing to fail. Cause I could have given up and I really, I thought about it. So I thought I'm just not good enough. I'm an idiot. First of all, I'm an idiot because these fundamental aspects of storytelling, I let go to the wayside. That's what I'm thinking. Right. And then it's just right. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. You know, I'm not clever enough. I'm not whatever it is. And I really, really was like ready to just be done. Like I'm not good enough. It's time to be done. But I wasn't done. I took a break a little bit, but I wasn't done. And had I allowed that failure to hold me back, obviously I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now. So it definitely is, has shaped me. So I guess, I don't know. The moral of the story is like, be prepared to fail, fail hard. Um, but the, I mean, this is cliche. The true failure is not getting back up. You know right. what I mean? But failure is, a, is a, it's an integral part of developing as an artist and a person, right? So that was a lot of probably what shaped where I eventually got. And then the rest, a lot of it is craft, right? You just, you get way better, you know, any, everybody has a craft. um, And you, you really should always engage in continuous education, right? So you're honing your craft, you're getting better, you're getting a deeper understanding, you're learning new skills. That's important. If you don't do that, then shame on you. Uh, And then you, continue to work through time. And when you look back at your work a decade ago, you're like, holy, oh my God. Like I had no idea how to light things properly or why did I do that? Or why did I think that was okay? And like you had said, you know, not everybody else feels that way. Most people are going to be way less critical than you, but it definitely, uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with that. I'm just rambling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's i love it i love the irony of you talk about failures and you you're, you're failed to, to address the question but it's still it's it's all nebulous so it's a it's awesome it's a it thank you man so to redirect things of uh, craig could you give us some information and advice because you you got into a lot of the inspiration for your past projects but for your current project ghost lord and a quest for the dark presence could you give us like a background on maybe your inspiration for that or what the process has been to get that worked on 
Yeah, I think, I mean, just uh, to be conscious of time, so I know I've been rambling, it's really, I heard the story from somebody. Uh, so this was, a, this. there's a video game called Dark Presence. It's been being worked on for 28 years. It is in the style of the original Mortal Kombat, where it's real people filmed on green screens. <laughs> the green screens are removed and you play as those real people. Okay, this game has been refilmed three times. There have been wealthy Texan investors. David Lynch's production company offered money for the story. There's been 13 iguanas acquired in the process. There's been potential curses involved. There's been mystery illnesses. There's been the creation of the world's largest arcade. Galloping Ghost did now over 920 something games. All of this, all of these were stories spun out of this quest that this man, Doc Mack, has been on for 28 years to finish this game he envisioned as a 17 year old. When I first heard this, that it was just that. Like, there's no inspiration. It's, wow, that's a great story. And I don't start with themes. I, this for me, I don't really believe in that. A lot of people preach themes, start with themes. So if we want, if our theme is love conquers all, that's where we start and then we build up from there. No, it's, is it an interesting story? If it is, then it, it grabbed me for some reason. And there's something there. And then when we start to dissect it, not to get too gross, but pick it apart and dig into it, themes will start to pop out. So it was really just I heard this from somebody that was in the game when she was 17, now 30 something, you know, and at the time pregnant and and a teacher. And um, when she told me that she had been in an abandoned warehouse on a green screen in this kind of scandalous outfit with a very spiky weapon being filmed by uh, Doc Mack, owner of the largest arcade in the world when he was much younger, I was like, oh, OK, wait, what? What happened? And that's kind of what inspired it. So could you give us um, like one, where will people be able to find this? And do you have like an estimated time of when you think it'll be done? <clears throat> right now. So I mentioned earlier, I basically spent all my money on it. So we are mm -hmm. fundraising. Um, and so it's on Kickstarter right now. We're fundraising. So if you go to ghostlordkickstarter.com backslash uh start which i'm sure you guys can put this in the notes so. yeah, yeah i'm gonna have the link uh, for this in the description of the video we put it up awesome so go to the kickstarter there's a trailer at the top we've used we have about 130 hours of footage right now i've done about 45 50 interviews and a lot of filming over the last two years you can see the trailer you get a that's going to explain the story the feeling the idea, everything much better than I can explain it here. So I encourage everybody to go there, check out the trailer. If you're there and you check out the trailer and you're like, I want to get involved, I want to give, awesome. We've got something like nine days left. And out of $60,000, we have 45. So we're doing good, but we've got a lot of ground to cover. When it's going to be released, I don't know. You know, I think it's the next step is getting the funds. That's what we're working on now to finish it off. When we have those, we'll be, you know, we're actually, we're still working. I mean, we shot an interview yesterday and we're shooting one tomorrow. So there's still, I'm still putting resources into it and moving it along, but it has to be what it has to be. You know, I have a vision in my head for it, what it is, and it can't be any less than that. And then it's just about, I mean, anybody can relate to this. It's just about resources at that point. Can we get the money together to keep working on it, working on it? I would love to say that it would be out within a year. Um, 
that I don't really want it to take longer than that. I always say, I don't want this to be my dark presence. You know, I don't want this to take me mm -hmm. so long because there's other things. I'm already writing a script for, for an indie film, you know, and then there's other doc ideas, uh, documentary ideas I'm talking to people about and starting to do some preliminary investigation into. So uh, while I love the story and it's been a great experience, there, every, every story needs to end at some point and then you move on to the next one. Right. So hopefully well, soon, yeah, relatively I, soon. I know myself. I'm very interested to see this. I'd, I'd love for this to to come to full fruition. So again, if everybody wants to support that, we'll have the link to the Kickstarter in the description of this video. Um, so again, go so go show some love, go support, so we can get this done. And if it is finished in time and you have it out on platform, we love to cover it and probably have you back on so we can discuss just the making of it or in the story itself. If you'd love to come back for that. Yeah, always. I've put so much into this. I, you know, as I don't mind talking about it. It's what I've spent most of my time doing for the last two years. Well, Craig, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate you giving us your time, your blood, sweat, and your energy for this really uh, dope conversation. Um, so, guys, getting to church announcements. We have some things coming up that we're going to be. Working on soon. I have a video on the Renaissance, or at least my personal Renaissance of horror coming out soon. Um, DBZ documentary and its effect on Black Nerds is still being worked on. And we have some other tasty treats and morsels that may be coming your way. You never know. Uh, but again, thank you guys for your support. We hope for your continued support. And we'll see you guys next time on another episode of the Then and Now podcast. Peace. Peace.